0: Good morning, Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. Good morning. We are continuing uh, one of our two series here at church, 1 uh, Peter. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter and not to the Gospel of Mark, because that would make following along uh, rather difficult. Chapter 3. And uh, we'll be reading chapter 3:17 through 22. And I've titled this, "The Triumphs of Christ's Suffering: the Triumphs of Christ's Suffering." And we have seen how suffering has been a predominant theme in Peter's book, have we not? He has, P- Peter has the heart of a pastor. And there's a great sense of emotion. There's a sense of urgency in his writing because Pastor Peter knows circumstances for Christians throughout the Roman Empire were hard. Persecution was on the rise. Christians were the prime target for suspicion, accusation, slander, and contempt. And it would... Only be a few short years from the time that Peter has penned this letter before both he and the Apostle Paul would be executed by order of Emperor Nero. Peter wants to encourage Christians, he wants to encourage the church, and he wants to strengthen the church. And to do that, he reminds the church of many precious truths concerning her salvation, namely, that it is secure. Namely, that it is unmoved, that it is not challenged, nor is it in jeopardy because of the sometimes startling reality of present afflictions and poor circumstances. And rather, quite the contrary, the presence of suffering can and ought to serve to strengthen and to affirm the Christian. Because just as Peter has said in chapter 2, verse 21, you have been called for this purpose. What purpose, Peter? To The purpose to suffer. Well, why have I been called to suffer? Because, Peter continues, Christ also suffered for you. And he has left you an example to follow in his steps. And if you follow along with Peter's reasoning, in the second half of chapter 2, he has mentioned that there are two kinds of suffering. There is just suffering, that is, suffering we receive that is justified, it is reasonable, it is explainable because we have done something to deserve it. In this sense, it could be called discipline. And we recognize that there is no reward for enduring discipline, for enduring suffering that we have brought down upon ourselves. He admits as much in chapter 2, verse 20. But what is commendable and what does find favor with God is patiently enduring, faithfully enduring suffering when it has befallen you for nothing you have done. Suffering that falls upon you when you have done what is right. And Peter wants desperately. He wants desperately to equip his readers so that as this kind of suffering comes down upon them, they would be primed and ready to suffer well. To suffer well for the name of Jesus. To suffer as a Christian ought to suffer in such a manner that when when bystanders would see them, when when, when your neighbors and coworkers and unsaved family members see you and your suffering, they would conclude, you ain't normal. There's a difference between you and normal people. Normal people, when when they are lashed out against, normal people lash out back. Normal people revile when they are reviled. Normal people, natural people return evil for evil. But Christians are not normal. And Christians are being conformed to the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christians more and more respond in their suffering like Christ did in his. And to sum up where Peter has brought us to, he says in verse 17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for what is for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And we may receive that. We may Process that propositional statement, that information. Suffering for right, good. Suffering for bad, for for wrong, bad. But Peter has the heart of a, of a of a pastor, and he's the heart of a teacher, and he knows teaching and shepherding sometimes requires going beyond the mere propositional statement. Good teaching. Needs to illustrate. And good teaching sometimes needs to lay down incentives. And encouragement. And Peter does just that. And to encourage us. And to equip us to suffer well. To endure affliction. With patience. And faithfulness. Peter reminds us that Christ. Triumphed through. His suffering. There will be times where. You need to remember Christ triumphed through his suffering. Christ perfectly, completely triumphed through his unjust suffering. And he accomplished the sovereign plan of God and the purpose of God. And the fact that he did that ought to encourage you and me that God will likewise triumph through our suffering truth is, is that Christ triumphed despite all of the evil machinations of the devil and of demons and of unbelieving, wicked men. And if you are in Christ, you may, you will likewise triumph despite all of the suffering that the world and demons and devil through throws at you. If God did it for Christ. He will do it for those who are in Christ, and to expand this thought, Peter gives us four aspects of Christ's triumph. And we're only going to look at the first two today. I'm I'm pulling a a play out of Pastor Carl's playbook, and we're going to do a two-parter, because uh, you would have to cancel your lunch plans if I didn't. They are, the first two are his triumphant death, beginning in verse 18, and then continuing in... Into verse 18 through verse 20, his triumphant declaration, and by means of preview, the third will be his triumphant deliverance, verse 21, and his triumphant dominion, verse 22. So I, I, would, I would have spared those of you who were in the first two rows because I changed my, my bullet points from P to D, so no spit. No, you don't have to worry about spit range. Let's read the text. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. ...who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah... ...during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience... ...through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So the first of two that we will look at this morning is his triumphant death, the triumph of his death. Peter says, for Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And there are five features that I want to I want to draw out of this text for you. Five features of Christ's suffering to draw out. First, notice, notice the extent of his suffering. His suffering was ultimate. His suffering was ultimate. Christ also, and I, it, that word also can be translated, and I think it makes more sense this way, even Christ even died. He, Peter has been talking about suffering in the lives of believers. You, we saw that when I when I read verse 17. Suffering is a reality that all believers, to some degree or another, experience in their lives. Some are allotted a life somewhat uh, free, more free from suffering and hardship, but others as Paul puts it in Philippians one twenty nine. Have been graciously granted. It has been given as if a gift to suffer, not just, not only to believe, but also to suffer for the name of Jesus. Did you know that being uh, that suffering for the name of Jesus is a gift? And for some, such as Jabez. You remember the, the the prayer of Jabez that was a, a big hit about ten fifteen years ago. He, he's this somewhat obscure man who appears in a very short passage in the Old Testament, and he was blessed, but he, he he had a little bit of suffering, and he asked to be blessed, and guess what? God blessed him. And in terms of the gift of suffering, that's kind of like a stocking suffer, stocking stuffer. And some people get that they 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 have just enough suffering to fill the stocking. But others are given uh, the, 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 the big package under the tree. You, you know, remember when you used to go out to the Christmas tree and you see a couple boxes and you see one big box? Or there's a pony outside or a bike? Some people are given the stocking stuffer. Some people get the pony of suffering. And many believers in the church did indeed Suffer. And Peter reminds them, you may be suffering. You may have it rough. You may have a a hard time at work. You may have a hard time in your marriage. You may have a hard time with your kids. But Christ even died. Christ died. You may be in the midst of some severe suffering. You may have people slandering you. You may be treated with contempt. You may have... False charges levied against you. If you're a Christian baker, you may have your business shut down. You may have your freedom of speech being infringed and eventually taken away. You may even be physically threatened and beaten. That's not beyond the scope of possibility for Christians. Church history demonstrates that. You may have it rough. Christ died. That's ultimate. Secondly, his death was sin-bearing. Christ died for what? Christ died for sins. In the Old Testament, God made it very clear sin resulted in death. Death was the consequence for sin. So if man was to walk with God, if man was to relate to God and to dwell with God, something had to be done regarding man's sin. So beginning all the way in the garden, God responded to man's sin by draping him, by covering him and his wife with the garments of animal skins. Implication, you have to do a little deduction work here, but the implication is, is something died to provide those animal skins. Unless you're talking about a big potato that had some big potato skins, an animal had to die. And we, we see... That image, we see this system of animals being slain, that their lives being offered up because of man's sin. We see that developed much more clearly and systematically in the law. And the idea was that these animals, which they had to be spotless, they had to be without blemish, they had to be perfect because they were were representing innocence, they were representing moral perfection. And as they died, they posed as a substitute for the sins of a man. Now Christ, he comes along and he offers up what the blood of, of all the bulls and the goats and the, the rams and the sheep and the doves, he, he does with himself what, what none of that stuff could do. And that was to effectually absorb the holy wrath and the judgment of, of God against sins. In the same way that a, a bulletproof vest absorbs the impact of a bullet. Christ, Christ's offering up of himself, his death, absorbed the punishment and the wrath that my sin deserved and that your sin deserved. Christ died for sins. Third, we see that his death was unique. Christ died for sins once and for all. How many times did he die? Once. And how many sins did his death pay for? For all. And this is such a a clear, stark contrast. And Hebrews picks up on this. How those sacrificial offerings, they needed to be offered up. Year after year after year, generation after generation after generation, millennia after, well century after century, and I think there's only two millennia, so I can't I can't use that uh, phrase, but so on and so forth. Grandchild would be offering up sacrifices exactly as as grandpa did, and great grandpa, and great 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 grandpa. That is a lot of blood being spilled to cover up the sins of people and christ jesus offers himself once once and he dies for sins once and for all in a system for for people who grew up in this system where sacrifices were repeated over and over and over Time after time after time, he comes along and he offers himself up as a sacrifice which completely dwarfs everything that those slain bulls and goats and lambs and doves could have ever done. He offers himself up as a sacrifice which stands in a class entirely, unequivocally, in a class of its own, never to be compared with with anything that anybody else could ever come along and offer to do in recompense for their sin. Why could nobody ever dream to compete with what Christ offered up to God in recompense for sin? because no matter who it is no matter who would step forth and try they aren't the pure, perfect spotless lamb of god who as john said john the baptist says takes away the sins of the world and where the offerings had to be made for one's own sin jesus comes along and he pays a sin sin bearing bearing price that is sufficient for all who come to him in faith his death was unique not to be compared with anything else and not to be repeated ever again. Fourth, we see that his death was vicarious. It was vicarious. It was substitutionary. And while this was already understood in, 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 in Peter's audience, they, they are Jewish Christians. They are Christians who grew up in the Hebrew background and culture and they would have understood the sacrificial system. They understood that a sacrifice was made in lieu of, of the person, of the man. Peter is driving it home. Jesus died and, and was put, uh, he died the just for the unjust. Jesus being the only inherently righteous man, the only naturally righteous, good man, the only naturally righteous man, the only man who in his very essence is holy and just and righteous, that man died for those who were not. The sinless died for the sinful. The righteous died for the unrighteous. Jesus died for us, for me. And if you're in Christ, he died for you. The one good man died for rebels and sinners. The one who loved God and perfectly kept the law of God stood in the place of those who hated God and rebelled from God's law. Jesus' death was vicarious. It was substitutionary. And fifth, we see that his death was purposeful. His death was purposeful. For, for what did Christ suffer and die? To, to what end did he offer himself up? Christ died. How does Peter conclude the, the, the middle of the verse? So that he might bring us to God. Now, that word, bring us to, it's a technical word that w- describes someone who granted the privilege of, uh, of access. He granted, he made it possible to, to be brought into the presence of someone who was more important. Uh, the, the servant of a king might screen or vet someone who wanted to come in, and see him. If I were to go and knock on that uh, pristine glass door outside one of the many Microsoft uh, campuses and ask to see Mr. Bill Gates, if I was even given the, the time of day, I'm going to be vetted by people who are much further down the ladder than he is. And if perchance I was fortunate enough, I might be granted access. This is what Jesus did for us. By paying for our sins, by cleansing us, and by clothing us with his righteousness like a robe. Do you see that he has brought you, he has made you presentable, and he has brought you into the presence of God. And he has given you this access as a privilege. He has personally brought you into heaven's throne room. And as Ephesians 2.6 says, you have been made to sit down with him in the heavenly places. Colossians 3.3 3 says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or hidden with God in Christ. Through Christ, you have been brought to. You have been introduced. You have been given access to God. And those who are outside of Christ, those who are not in Christ, they cannot and they will not possess this privilege unless they, too, come to Christ in faith. And some might say, well, that sounds awful arrogant. You have such a privileged access to God, but we have to remember It's not because of anything we've done. My access to God isn't because of anything I've done or because of who I am or because of how smart I am or how witty I am or who I know or how much money I have or what I can do. It's Because of who Christ is and what he's done. He has given me by grace access to God. Christ's death was purposeful. And so we see Christ's suffering culminated with this ultimate price, his death, and that his death bore sin. It propitiated sin. It satisfied wrath. It was unique. It was vicarious, and it was purposed to bring us to God. That is a triumph for Christ, is it not? a triumph for us too. These are truths that I I don't really need to explain or I don't don't need to prompt you to rejoice in these. I think think we can see that. We can rejoice in these. But we have to ask, how does this apply to our suffering? How does Christ's triumph in this regard apply to our suffering? And what, what I want you to see is that Peter, what Peter wants you to see is that he wants you to know that when things get tough, When you suffer, you can remember that God accomplished precisely what he wanted to in and through Christ's suffering. No matter what the world threw at Christ, no matter what what the devil threw at Christ, no matter what demons and lawless wicked men threw at Christ, it didn't prove enough to thwart God's plans. Do you see that? And in fact, God is so God is so big and smart and powerful and wise that he actually and this is the irony, he actually used the machinations and the schemes and the plotting of sinful, lawless, wicked men and the demons and Satan. He actually used them as a means to accomplish his purposes. That's the God we belong to. And so when, you're, when you suffer, trust that God is big enough and smart enough and wise enough to use your suffering to accomplish good. It, but basically, Peter is saying here what Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight. And so he wants you to be encouraged and steadfast in your suffering. And if you're not suffering right now, relax. It, it's coming. He did it for god did it for christ he'll do it for those in christ we all, so we see that his death was triumphant and we saw how it can encourage us that he was triumphant in his suffering we also see this triumphant declaration that christ went to make continue uh, again in the middle of verse 18 having been put to death in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Let's stop right there. So Christ dies triumphantly, and then he triumphs through this declaration to certain imprisoned spirits. Now, Peter has already said Christ died, but here he repeats he repeats that idea. He says, "Having been put to death for emphasis, to remind us, Christ really died. I mean, honestly, he did. He died, and we have to stress that because there have been many efforts throughout the ages to try to explain the empty tomb. Do you remember the first uh, explanation? The the, 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 the the first explanation about why the tomb was empty? What did, what did the Jews tell the people?" His, his, his disciples came and stole the body. Never mind that you know there was a big old rock on the way. Never mind that it was under Roman guard. His disciples, the, those Galilean fishermen, they did it. It's just a propaganda. It's just a piece of propaganda. Don't now. That was the first, and there have been many others. One one such theory uh, is the swoon theory. Have you heard of this? The swoon theory. You have to say it like you're an elegant, you know, with, your, with a monocle. and a swoon theory. It, it, this suggests that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He, he merely fainted. He swooned. He, he swooned from exhaustion. And sometime after he, he was laid in the tomb, in the cool of the day, he revived and he, and he left. So consider this. The Roman soldiers, Romans. They, they knew a thing or two about death, right? If it was your job to, it's a little grotesque, but if it was your job to kill people, to, to, to watch them, to make them suffer, to watch them suffer, and then to kill them, you might know a thing or two about that, you know, after a couple years of doing it. The Roman soldiers verified he was death. First, they visually inspected him, the two thieves, one on either side. They're still alive. This guy, he's dead. They visually inspected it and said he was dead. And then one of them pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water came out. That's a physiological uh, proof his heart had not been pumping. He's dead. Also think, one doesn't simply get scourged and beaten and crucified and stabbed in the side of, with a spear and then simply revive. I mean, no no medication, no antibacterial, no, um, you know, sh- Thing, differ, differ, diff, the thing. <laughs> one, one one doesn't simply go through all that and then unswoon himself. And he would have to. That's this, this presuppose that did happen. Now you have a big old rock that is that is lodged. It, it was rolled into place, and there was a there was a, a, a crevice where. The rock would sink into so you don't just simply push it out it had to be lifted out and this thing is big and massive so jesus you know having recently unswooned himself uh his his strength recovers i mean he was a carpenter so he probably worked out a little bit but he has to push this heavy stone out of the way and then he has to get past the guards so i I hope you can see this is this is a, a dumb theory but unbelieving people will cling to dumb theories if, if, in a, in a vain-ditch attempt to justify their rebellion. Peter's point, Jesus was truly, verifiably, physically dead. But spiritually, spiritually he was alive. It says that he, having been put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. And there's a little bit of a textual Variants here, uh, or textual issue issue here, because uh, the definite article, the word the, uh, pointing to w- like when you say the spirit, you're talking about one particular spirit. It's defining, it's this spirit. That the word the is not there in the Greek, and there were no capital letters in the Greek, so we don't know for sure if this is spirit big S. As in the Holy Spirit, I don't think it is because there's no definite article there. So this is this is Jesus's person. This is His spirit. This is His inner self, His mind, His consciousness, His person. While His body is dead, stone cold, His spirit is alive. And Peter informs us of what He does in this rare occasion where where his spirit and his body are separate from each other. What does he say? He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, who are these spirits? And why are they in prison? And, and what, what was this proclamation that Jesus made? Well, there are two normal words for, for proclaim or proclamation uh, or, or, I'm sorry, there, there's two normal words for preaching. One of them is, pro, is to proclaim. The other is uh, euangelizo. That, that's the word where we get the word evangelize. And, and that word means to preach or proclaim or share good news. And the good part of it is, is kind of an important bit because it's built into the name. It is, to, it, is, it is literally good proclaim or good speak, good message. So when you evangelize, when you engalizzo, you, you have to be sharing something positive, something good, something successful, something that people want, something desirable. And in the New Testament, that word is, has become intrinsically tied to sharing the gospel but this other word keruso is the word that peter uses in this text when he describes what jesus is doing jesus isn't evangelizing he's proclaiming and unlike euangelizo this word doesn't necessitate it doesn't require and demand that what is being proclaimed is good and positive and wanted it just simply means to proclaim to impart information uh, and it was used to describe a, a herald heralding or imparting the will or the decree of his sovereign. And sometimes, when the herald is out there doing his job, he's telling the people a message they don't want to hear. That 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 can't be used for e, Uangalizo, but it can be used for K. Russo. And I believe. I believe that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming something that didn't fill his his audience's ears with warm, fuzzy bunnies. Jesus wasn't evangelizing these spirits in prison. He was declaring triumph to them. And I think that will become clear as we examine who they were. So we have to ask, who are these spirits? Well, thankfully, Peter gives us some contextual clues, and he continues that they were spirits who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now, thankfully, that narrows it down a little bit. These spirits were active and on at least one occasion they were disobedient in the time of Noah. And that's way, 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 way back in Genesis. So this turn to turn to Genesis chapter six. Let me hear those pages turning. That's 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 called a Baptist air conditioner. When all the pages in the church turn together. Genesis chapter six. We'll read verses uh, 1 to 5. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously." Now, from from this passage, which Peter has linked us to, I hope you see I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. Peter has provided us a contextual springboard. So we're taking advantage of that, and we're going to do some exegesis. And I think there are three candidates to be these spirits which Jesus preached to in 1 Peter 3. One option is that they are the men of Noah's day. These are the men... Who, as verse 5 describes, they are incredibly wicked. They are consumed with wickedness. And and every intent and thought of their heart was on wickedness. And they were continually, perpetually just set on evil. And then secondly, there are the Nephilim. uh, The Nephilim uh, means falling ones. Uh, These are... Uh, named because they fell on others with with this utmost savage ferocity. These were marauders. These were manslayers. They were killers and murderers. That's why Moses described them as mighty men, men of renown. And then, a third option is the sons of God. Who the the sons of God who took the wives who took wives for themselves from the daughters of men and produced children by them. Now, for sake of time, I'm just going to tell you who I think it is, and I'll tell you why. I think it's the third option. I think it's the sons of God who are the spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3. And here's why, and as we discuss this, you might be surprised what what develops in this study. In the Old Testament... Son of God, or sons of God is a phrase referring to those who are directly brought into being by God. They are not birthed through normal natural means. They're not birthed through procreation. They are woven directly into being by supernatural power, by God's supernatural power. And with the exception of Adam, which In the New Testament, Luke's genealogy does call Adam a son of God. The Old Testament doesn't. So so with the exception of Adam, these are not normal men. They are angels. And if you go back to 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says Christ went and he made proclamation to the spirits. And in the New Testament, spirits, unless it has... A particular grammatical structure, uh, uh, unless it's configured a certain way in the Greek, it almost exclusively refers to the angelic, to both holy angels and fallen angels. And if if Peter were, were referring to human spirits in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, he would have used uh, psuche, which is the word we get for psychology. It's the Greek word for soul. For for who you are, your your beingness on the inside, and he uses that. Peter actually does use that uh, word, soul, in verse twenty, where he says that the ark saved eight people. That's the word, eight souls. And so Peter doesn't use that word for those who received Jesus's preaching. He uses the word spirits, which again it usually refers to the angelic and some have suggested that the sons of god refer to the faithful men among Seth's lineage remember Seth was the third boy and he 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 was a he was a good apple and after Seth came along that's when men began to call on the name of the lord so he was he was a good apple Cain was a bad egg or a bad, bad apple and and what what really is happening here is that the faithful men along uh, some would say is that the faithful men along seth 's line uh, were hooking up with the uh, women of cain 's line and 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 rather than call them daughters of Cain there they people would say these were called daughters of men, but that can't be the case because if if the sons of God were natural believing men, how come Nobody responded to Noah's preaching. If the sons of God were believing righteous people from Seth's line, why is it Noah preached? Hebrew says that he, pre- he was a preacher of righteousness while he built the ark for 120 years. And do you know how many people believed and positively responded to his preaching? How many other than his family? Who else got on the boat? Nada. So I, I think that's evident. There were, that the sons of God can't be the righteous among Seth's line because there were no longer any righteous people except for Noah and his family. And if, if these were normal, natural men, Moses could have simply said sons of men, but he, he didn't. He used the, the Old Testament common word, to describe angels. And you can see that twice in Job and a couple times in the Psalms. Now, this is the interpretation that the that the Jews took. It's the traditional uh, Hebrew interpretation. It's the interpretation of the early church fathers. So we're on, exegetically, we're on okay ground. When you're doing your own exegesis and your own interpretation and you find that you've come up with something novel, you've come up with something no one's ever heard before, that's when you might want to, you know, but when you find that you, that there are people that who agree with you, you know, and that you can, you can say it that way. The church fathers agree with me, Paul Paul agrees with me. You can say that if you want. But when you find that you're in agreement with people who've also wrestled with this stuff, that that's a good sign, exegetically. But furthermore, the New Testament writers help us to understand Genesis six. If you turn to second, so go back to the, go back to the New Testament. And just a couple pages past where we were in 1 Peter 3 to Second Peter chapter 2. In verse 4, Peter brings up the judgment of angels during the time of Noah as well. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And, and here's where he links it to Noah. And did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then Jude, uh, flip again, uh, past the Johns to Jude. Verse 6. I love that sound. I, I, I can't get that on the recording. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh as exhibited as an example of in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire now there was a another contextual bridge a springboard there Sodom and Gomorrah you remember that narrative right we don't need to turn there how two angels went to rescue Lot who in a similar way to Noah he's he's the, um, the 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 faithful minority amongst a faith unfaithful unbelieving majority and and he's these two angels are sent to him and and he hosts them in his house and the men of the city start banging on the door demanding Lot bring the angels out so that the men of the city could know them carnally is what the one of the, one translation says uh, that was a case of men going after strange, uh, different, alternate flesh, and that that means going after a flesh not intended, meant, or designed for their use. It wasn't compatible. It wasn't appropriate for them. And. Jude compares the men of Sodom and Gomorrah with the angels who sinned in the days of Noah. He says he compares them as, 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 as committing the same violation. They, they both transgressed, and they transgressed with such a bound... Let me say it again. They transgressed such a boundary that God immediately... Responded in terrible, horrific judgment. And he incarcerated them, Second Peter 2 says, in hell. And that word hell, it's not the typical German, uh, German, Jewish, that was a slip of the tongue. Um, that's not the typical Jewish word for hell, Gehenna. This is the word tartarus, not tartar sauce, tartarus. It, it, Tartarus in, in Greek uh, mythology was it was a special place of judgment. You've heard you know the the joke you know there's a special place of, in hell for so and so and such and such. There really is a special place in hell. It's, it's called Tartarus in uh, in in Greek. It's called Tartarus. and It was a special uh, incarceration. It was a special place of judgment um, for those who had offended the gods. And so Peter uses that word to describe the place of incarceration of these angels who transgressed such a boundary, such a boundary. It's described as, uh, as, a, as pits of judgment in Second 2 Peter 2.4 and then in Jude 6, that they are kept uh, under eternal bonds under darkness. It, it, this is a bad place. It's a bad place. I, I hope you guys are picking that up. And in Revelation, seven times this prison prison is called the abyss, uh, the abyss. It, the word is abyssos, not applesauce. I, I, I was hungry when I was studying. Okay, it's abyss, and it is such a place. It is such a place of fear for the demonic that the demoniac in the Gospels. When, remember the guy who has legion inside him. Uh, In in Matthew 8 and Luke 8, uh, the Holy Spirit made it convenient that they're both in chapter 8 of Matthew and Luke. When Jesus encounters the demoniac with Legion, Legion panics. Legion freaks out. And he, he begs to know. In Matthew, he asks Jesus, have you come to torment me before the time?" And then in, in Luke eight thirty one, that's uh, if you're taking notes, Matthew eight twenty nine, and for Luke eight thirty one, Legion asks Jesus. He begs to know. Uh, he begs Jesus not to command him to send him into the abyss. I, 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 I like the way that's phrased. Uh, I implore you, do not send me. Do not command me to go into it. So he, even in his begging, the demon admitted christ's authority so the abyss is a place no angel no demon wants to go it's a bad place so and 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 they went there because of this great transgression so why did they do that why did they go after strange flesh why did the fallen angels abandon their proper abode and cross that boundary that that incredible boundary well, if you go back even further in Genesis, if you go back before Genesis 6, go back to, to Genesis 3.15, you'll remember that the serpent, who revela- uh, which Revelation uh, 20 verse 2 identifies as Satan, the serpent of old, that he was cursed by God for his part in Adam's sin. And he was promised that he and the seed of the woman would be at enmity with each other and in describing the, the, the results of this conflict, of this enmity between the two, between the seed of the woman and the serpent and his seed, God said that the serpent would manage to do, he would manage to bruise the seed's heel. That's going to hurt. You know, it's going to cause some inflammation. It's going to be uh, not, not, not a nice thing, but it's not fatal. The seed of the woman, on the other hand, would do what? would crush the serpent's head. Folks, that that's a death blow. There's a big difference between between striking a heel and having your head crushed. Now, throughout the scriptures, so 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 Satan and the demons are promised they will be defeated by this seed of the woman. By one who would come from the woman. And so throughout the scriptures, you see the demonic forces trying many different methods to undermine and to prevent God's promise from coming to fruition we see we see the perpetual temptation of God's people throughout Israel's history you see the davidic line almost snuffed out when little when when the davidic line was reduced to one little baby infant placed in hiding by by a nurse we see haman almost almost succeed in, in, in racial genocide and, and, and wiping out the entire Jewish people under Persian rule. We see uh, when, when Jesus shows up on, in the flesh, we see King Herod trying to kill him. We see demo- we see Satan himself entering the fray. We see more demonic activity in the, th- in the approximate three years of Jesus's life than you see in the entirety of the Old Testament. Think about that. When Jesus shows up, when the seed of the woman shows up, it, it, it's as if the demons have to realize we need to up the ante because it's about to get real. And so what many take Genesis 6, 1 to 4 to mean then, in in light of the overall demonic agenda, which I, hopefully I, I, I articulated that well enough, in light of the overall demonic agenda, What they were doing in Genesis 6, 1-4, was an attempt to corrupt and demonically pollute the Messianic line by flooding the world with some kind of human-demon hybrid breed of people. Now, that sounds sick, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Does that sound twisted? Does that sound depraved? Well, perhaps... I mean, it it should, and it ought to, and perhaps that's why Peter tells us they were once disobedient in this manner. There was one time that they transgressed such a boundary. I think as a result of of that incredible judgment, we see that, that, that that was a boundary they would never cross again. And that's why in the Gospels, the demons are terrified to Undergo the same judgment that these spirits did in Genesis six. So it was there; it was the abyss. Let's, let's bring it back to First Peter chapter three. It's there. The, it's 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 in the abyss. It's in Tartarus. It's it's in that special kind of hell that Jesus went to preach, and 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 that's reflected in the in the uh, Apostles' Creed. That that that's that's it's a it's a bit of a controversy, but there's a there's a line in in the Apostles' Creed that we believe Jesus descended into hell, and this is where it comes from. So Jesus goes to preach, not to evangelize, but to make a proclamation, to declare something, and that was to declare his triumphs. the, the demons had thrown everything they had into the mix. And and they thought perhaps if they could get Jesus killed, if if their demonic allies who were still unbound in the world, if they could somehow get Jesus killed, if they could somehow thwart God's plan, maybe in some way, this is conjecture, but maybe in some way they thought they could get the keys to hell and they could be free. That's speculation. But they had thrown everything they could get uh, they 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 could at Jesus they got him killed and imagine their surprise again conjecture uh, speculation but perhaps they were celebrating in hell they had got Jesus killed and who knocks they hear a knock at the door you know there there there's a there's a con there's a uh, there's a circus going on in 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 hell there's a there's a parade there's celebrations complete with boombox and confetti. And they hear a knock on the door. And they, sh- they, they, they perhaps would expect a, a beaten, bloodied, defeated Jesus. A dead Jesus. But a conquering, living Christ shows up. And now I know some of my sermons can go long. Paul preached throughout the night so long that uh, a a, a young man fell asleep and fell out the window. Jesus, again, conjecture, speculation, but he was dead for three days, and I don't know of of any other place he went during this time. So perhaps he was preaching a message that his audience didn't want to hear for three full days. That's amazing. So what does, a, what does Christ's triumphant declaration have to do with the Christian's suffering? Christian, Peter wants you to know that there will be times in your suffering where you will feel like the loser. Maybe you've already gone through those times. Maybe you can relate to that. There will be times where you will feel like the loser, and those who are persecuting you, those who are harassing you, your your enemies in this world, those who hate you and who slander you and gossip about you, who conspire against you, who take advantage of you, it, there will be times where they will seem to be the victor. It will seem like they have the upper hand. It will seem like they have the high ground. And it won't seem fair. There will be times where it will seem that sinners and those disobedient to God and those who reject God, there will be times where it seems like they have it really nice and you who are trying to be faithful have it really rough. Noah spent, I think there's a reason that Peter alludes to Noah. He spent 120 years building that ark. I'm sure there's a little bit of ridicule that was flung his way during that time. And you and I may be called, you know, we may get that, that you may get that stocking st- stuffer gift of suffering, and you may get the pony gift. You and I may be called to suffer. There will be times where courts will fail to procure justice, and, and Christians will be made to suffer for the name of Christ. But when that happens, Peter wants you to re- remember God was accomplishing your greatest day, your greatest good in Christ's most horrible day. And that's the day that your sins were fully and finally paid for on the cross. And Christ went and proclaimed to those who had opposed him for so long. You have to understand, they were there a long time a long time and he informed them for all their scheming for all their machinations for all their deviousness and underhanded tactics and they failed and he had won christian your redeemer and savior always wins no matter how bad it gets No matter how bad the suffering will be, your Savior always wins. And it's good to be in him. Christ cannot be stopped. Christ is the Savior worth worshiping and trusting and obeying. So remember that in your suffering when it happens. Well, today is Communion Sunday. So, why don't we trans- why don't we close our sermon session and.